We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Judah Davies. He is a coach and tactical analyst, does a lot of great work online. The topic we are going to cover is game models, so I think you're all going to enjoy this one. Please let me know what you think, at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. A couple of quick announcements before we start. I've just come back from the Leicester City Tactical Insights course and I've done a 14-page review of the presentations that day, along with my personal takeaways from each one. You can download that on the Modern Soccer Coach Community platform, and when you're there, we have a new webinar coming up next week on the platform, and the topic is playing with a back three. So we've got some brilliant insight from some guest coaches on training with a back three, Sheffield United's overlapping centre-backs, a study on Wolfsburg in and out of possession and then where the vulnerabilities are in that system as well and how you could cover them. So to get access to the document and the webinars, go to modernsoccercoach.com slash community and sign up. Easy to register, two-week free trial and then it's only $6 a month to get access to over 350 video exercises, weekly content, and monthly webinars. You get it all right away. So if you listen to the podcast and enjoy the content, please subscribe, only $6 a month. Before we get started, a special shout out to our friends over at Sports Lab 360. If Soccer IQ is something you think your team could improve upon, stick around at the halfway point to hear some information from the Sports Lab 360 team and a special guest. All right, over to Judah. Enjoy. Judah, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Excited to have you on, finally. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to start on game models and we'll see where this goes. But, you know, from a, from a tactical expert, an analyst like yourself who, who watches the game through that lens, how would you describe an effective game model? Just to start off with, I definitely don't consider myself an expert. <laughs> um, <laughs> just get that out of the way uh, simply someone who wants to learn and I think I've been on that path for a long time and I still am on that path and I don't think I'll ever stop being on that path but yeah um, on the question I think in the long run an effective game model has to be measured in terms of results really so that doesn't just mean like oh do you win a certain percentage of games it, it sort of means like do you get the results you're you're aiming to get so obviously the objectives for the Liverpools and Man Cities of this world are different to the Burnleys and the um, Everton's of this world, and as well to the like academies. So within like academy football, my objective might be like player development. So to get a certain number of players within a certain number of years towards the first team. So those are our objectives. So if we have a model for our academy and we manage to hit those targets, then I would say that's effective. And the same. So for Liverpool and Man City, do they achieve their targets? Do they win the league? Do they go far in the Champions League? And I think that's the most effective way in the long run 
to measure effective game level. Yeah, stay with us because obviously you you're not Pep Guardiola and you're not sitting in Manchester City training facilities. You don't really know, and I get that. But do you see that the way City play football, and obviously their miles behind Liverpool this season, do you see them tactically as having a successful season? Um, <laughs> tactically, I think there's some differences which which clearly well, which are there in the statistics in terms of particularly the defensive side of their game. Uh, they concede a lot more goals and that's not just random it's also they concede a lot more chances so i think a lot more shots on target and a lot more in terms of expected goals than over the past couple of seasons and i think if you trace it to the way they defend within open play i think there's some clear differences such as their pressing scheme they changed to 442 for example so they press more in 442 now where like one of the eight so let's say Bruyne, for example will stay high alongside aguero and the other one would like join the whole midfielder. So now it's 4 for 2. And yeah, I think I'm not sure exactly what the reasons behind that change were, but it seems to have introduced some problems, in particular defending the half spaces on the far side. So if the opponents switch, they're able to sort of play through the half spaces quite often, more than usual. And perhaps it's the unfamiliarity for the players or. Perhaps, obviously, 4 for 2 itself has some problems, as does any formation, but those seem to be easier for teams to exploit nowadays. So, yeah, I think tactically they definitely have some problems, which Pep has spoken about himself. Also, uh, for example, defending the counter-attacks. The counter-press isn't quite right. And then now he's he's made quite a few adjustments across the season to try and rectify those issues. So he started playing, for example, two holding midfielders, which then has the knock-on effect of affecting their possession game and their offensive game and yeah i think those are some of the problems out there do you think you you, you just touched on that there you you know you change one thing in your defensive organization and, and it can impact your your in possession your build-up whatever it is do you think that you know as coaches we we isolate those four moments slightly without I, I suppose trying to see the knock-on effects of what making a, a simple change in one area will happen somewhere else. Mm. I think that definitely does happen, yeah, um, because some people are using, for example, even different coaches within different phases, which doesn't necessarily mean they aren't aligning. But I think, yeah, if you're going to do that kind of thing, you need to be extremely careful and extremely conscious to make sure that you align those things. Because I think it's Lillo, Juan Lillo, the Spanish coach, who mentions about the fact that the game of football is continuous and these things don't happen. Well, sometimes they do, but it's not like American football, for example, where you have a break and then the next phase starts. Well, I don't know American football too well, but yeah, you know, sometimes we do have set pieces which separate phases, but more often than not, these phases happen continuously with transitions in between. So that means the position you have, for example, when you are in one phase, is also your start position for the next phase. So that's just the obvious way to, to show that these things are linked. So we need to make sure that that doesn't happen where we separate the phases too much. You mean you can't just build a philosophy saying that you you take, I'll build up like Pep, I'll counter press like Klopp, I'll... And then, <laughs> I see them online of thinking like, oh, that's brilliant. Back in the real world, however, you're right. The the you can't do. I think it was Leo says it was. Yeah, you, no no aspect of the game works in isolation. So, is that do you know what? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because we don't understand it in depth, or do you think that's just 
you know, as people, we normally want to break things down in small incremental pieces. Education has taught us that, so we apply the same principles to soccer. I completely agree with that. I think it's a tool for um, reducing the complexity of certain things, whereby we we think, yeah. So the current picture is extremely complex. Let's break it down into simple steps so we can understand this and then this and then this in a step-by-step manner. Whereas like learning psychology tells us actually being confused is a good thing because it means that your brain is going to be continuously working on these things um, to try and create the understanding. So rather than breaking things down, which like you said, education has taught us, we should rather not be um, threatened by not understanding and rather keep these things together and work towards um, a greater understanding of the things with the full complexity. Ah, we're moving now. This is the direction that I wanted to go. So how can top coaches' game models then differ from one to the other? Where do you see the people that are at the top? Where do you see them having big changes? So without, because I don't, unfortunately, have a Guardiola's number, it's a call and I, but um, <laughs> without knowing these people, I guess the precision in terms of their instructions and their principles and the way that they coach. So obviously that's that's a slightly different thing than the model itself. But like we spoke before and starting this, that actually there's a lot of consistency within the way they approach things from a psychological perspective, from a tactical perspective, and their coaching methodology. So I think they align these things all really well, but slightly separate to the question. So back to the game model itself, I think they are creating a very clear picture for their players by giving really precise instructions. But I think it's, it's precision with the balance. So you need to try and get a balance between the precision in terms of the detail that we give the player, because that will increase what we could say like input complexity. So input complexity is like how much the player has to perceive before making the decision. So if I just tell him, if I say for example to my left back, when the left centre back receives the ball, be an option for him. So now the only thing he needs to perceive to make the decision is whether the left centre back has the ball or not. But if I tell him when the left centre back has the ball and receives it with his left foot, then that's more input complexity because there's more for him to perceive. So we want to get the right balance between enough input complexity so that they can make a good decision, but not too little output complexity. So if I give too much input complexity, which is how much they have to perceive, then the output complexity becomes less because I reduce the possible solutions. So if I tell him in this situation, do this in this situation, when that happens, then the amount of possible actions he can do gets smaller and smaller and smaller, which means the output complexity is less. So basically, to try and keep it uh, more concise, you want to get the right amount, the right balance between how much they have to perceive and then the amount of possible actions they can still do once they've made that decision. Do you think we are in danger of being too generic with our game models? You know, it's, it's a tough one for me to answer because I actually haven't seen, I've hardly seen game models, really. Uh, mm. I remember a few years ago, one or two people put ones out on Twitter um, looking for feedback and had a look. In the last few years, I've hardly seen any, like someone saying, oh yeah, this is my game model idea. So it's a tough one for me to say, but I think as with anything, there's always layers to it. So we can be more detailed and the more detailed we are, then hopefully the idea is to reduce 
the confusion for the players. So the players, when the players understand it better, then they can execute it quicker, and that allows us to be better, which I assume is what the top coaches are doing better. Yeah, but but then to play devil's advocate, I hate that phrase. You've got a youth coach, U13, U14, who's listening and saying, yeah, depth, detail. So then he's going on the training pitch tonight or she's going on the training pitch tonight and is pinpointing masses and masses amount of information. I suppose, how do you get that balance right between being detailed and then, like you said, allowing the player uh, the, the freedom or flexibility to make those choices without being constrained? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of the things. So the balance, basically. So not giving them too much to perceive, so that there's still um, the flexibility for them to use what they perceive to make a decision. So we can be um, flexible in the way we give instructions. If we say, for example, make a movement in a way where this option is still open. So if I said to my, how do I say? Yeah, if I say to my left back, make a movement in a way where the left centre-back is going to have two or three options. That's almost like a challenge for that player because he has to think, okay, so I want to make a move and make sure that this player still has two or three options to make. So I'll give him a coaching point because basically what I want is that my left centre-back has three options to play. Now he has to try and perceive how can I make this movement in a way where he has these options. So he can have a try and then I might give him some feedback and say, okay, so you made this move and this in this moment he only has one option now. So that player says, all oh, right, yeah, that's true. So by making that movement, I've reduced this option. So now he has an experiment with these with these um, options. So he says, okay, I've tried this one. That didn't work. I try again. And then he gets feedback again, either from me or from the game itself. And then that way, we allow the players to flexibly interpret the instructions and the rules that we give them. So, yeah, again, it's the, it's the balance between the inputs that we give them and then the output decisions that they have available. So along those lines, creativity, flexibility. Do you think? Do you think creativity is in danger of of going out of coaching? Do you think creativity is, yeah, is almost frowned upon in coaching? We talk about it as players. We talk about our players want to have freedom and flexibility. But are we creative enough as coaches to find ways to teach that, to to challenge that, to condition that? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I think uh, within some environment, it's possible that, and I think it's, it's again, it's a tough balance to get because you want to have some consistency. Like if we take an academy, for example, you want to have some consistency in terms of the player's experience. So the player comes through as an under nine player and in an ideal world leaves as a I don't know, under 18 or 23 straight to the first team. But within those years, you want him to have some consistency in terms of the experience that he has. So in his first year, he's been taught this this way of playing and you want that to, again, be consistent as he goes through so that by the time he reaches the first team in an ideal world, he has a basis and a good grounding in that that way of playing. So on that on that side, I understand it. But on the other hand, and I always say this, like I think, and I'm pretty sure clubs go through the processes and like really long processes to ensure that they actually hire good people like competent people. And if you're going to go through that process to hire competent people, I think it's really important that you trust and allow these people to actually do what they're good at. So if I'm going to hire a coach and go through a painstaking way to 
assess his confidence and say, yeah, finally, you're, you're my man or you're my woman, then allow them to show what they're good at and allow them to, and trust them to interpret a certain playing style with some flexibility and some creativity. So, yeah, I think if you go through the process to, to hire good people, you really do need to allow them to use those skills rather than constraining them too much, just like we say with players, really. Oh, exactly like we say of players. That's where that's where I think that, again, I, I mean, I, just my perspective, I just think that, say for a session design, for example, when you see sessions today that, and obviously people don't want to put everything up because, you know, they're, maybe they're reluctant to share, but I think the main reason for people not putting stuff up anymore is because people are tired of getting battered. So... The safe option is to put a session plan up that's got a 4v2 rondo. It's got a half pitch with too many goals in the halfway line. And you can coach anything within that. And the same with 4v4 plus 3. Coaches love it because you can coach this and that and this. And yes, game realistic. But then if we repeat that every single week with our teams, are we then disengaging our players with our session design? Yeah, I think quite possibly. Um, that's something that I've always tried to do, which is uh, to try and use varied session design, even within like the same theme. So if I've been on, uh, and that's not actually a way I work, by the way, but if I had been working for a month on, okay, yeah, possession, like build up, for example, within our own half, to try and use different methods, to try and use different types of sessions rather than using always the same design, which, as you said, could be like a safe way to go. So I think it's really important to keep giving the players new stimulus, for one, for their motivation. So when they see something new, like the motivation is to, to try and crack it, like a new puzzle, basically. So, oh, this is, this is new, like, how, how do we do this well? So it gives them a new stimulus in that way. And if the player is motivated to play it properly and to learn what's like behind the game and to solve the puzzle, then again, it links straight motivation learning linked hand in hand. So better motivation, in turn, better learning. So I've always tried to give new stimulus with new session designs. But I think actually it's, it's something even within the same session design, you can really impact the stimulus with with different different methods. So for example, competition, like any coach will tell you, you know. Put, put competition in, say, by this time, the team with the highest points is going to win and the other one has to collect all the equipment, for example. Like, motivation levels right through the roof. Different coaching points. So, obviously, if I focus heavily on build-up with, with the possession players and then the next week I focus heavily on pressing the pressing players, then the whole feel of the session is different for the players, even within a similar session. And then other things such as like the rules, like conditions that we, we put in, we can really manipulate the same game to give the players new stimulus. So you could have a really, really good session plan. Again, context, it could be done for the 20th time that season with a coach sitting on the ball, disengaged on his phone or her phone, and it could be a flop. Or you could have a session design that is quote-unquote unrealistic but it could be delivered in a really competitive way that people could enjoy it, get something from it, paint some pictures, energize people, uh, engage players, inspire players to do things in tight situations, and it would work. 
exactly. I guess it's probably something you've experienced as well, right? Which is the perceptions within like your culture. So how do they perceive what you're doing from the outside? So they, do they think, oh, like he, he's doing something different here. Um, doesn't look like the game. So why is he doing it that way compared to the actual outcomes you're getting? I guess that's something you've experienced. Yeah, but I would I would always say like, because it is branded about today when, when you do have a different day, well, is that realistic to the game? Mm. And what I would say then is like, what, what game are you trying to create? For example, build up play with two little say goals. Like that's the lowest value. The easiest part of build up play, unless it's against a really good press, is getting out of your half. Mm. But if, if it's against a block, you're at the halfway line, pretty simple. Then you're still 50 yards from goal. So your value of passes is still pretty minimal. So why would you do a build up? So what type of game are you trying? So yeah, it might replicate a certain picture of the game. But for me, I think we're way too far in the other spectrum where we're judging jury with this to where we're sitting saying it has to look exactly like the game. And and something that, again, something that I looked at your Twitter timeline and you've got a, a, uh, I'd love to get this guy on. I forget his name. He does a lot of posts for Spielaveron. And yes, yes. But he's so creative, like yeah. d- different shapes, different sizes, different... But it just keeps the mind going. And again, I'm sure he, he must get, I didn't look at his timeline, he probably gets 20 posts per, uh, 20 replies per post. Hey, this is not realistic. But I always think that's just, that's, if that engages a player to think and to play it a little, like that's what you want. And I just think we we should back off a little bit for this here because reducing the creativity of the coach, I mean, do we really want people to be copy and pasting the same session around the world. Yeah, exactly. I think it is a good point as well when you say the the session might not always look exactly like the game, which again that's that's one way of analyzing a session and evaluating it. But actually if the particular actions within the session are very similar actions to that those which happen in the game, or if it trains certain principles which are really important for the way i want my team to play then it can have really good transfer into the game which eventually is the well ultimately is the aim of coaching isn't it yeah and it can you know again that competitiveness it can be aligned to different set of principles but again you've got this what what is game so for example i go a different direction go to someone would there could be a 3v3 game someone could prescribe a 3v3 game for a club you could be playing 3v3 but that 3v3 will look different in a different culture if their culture is right that 3v3 game could be electric could be fantastic but a culture that's pretty mundane and boring that 3v3 game will probably have one person goaltending in each goal and 2v2 players close to that there and it's a standoff and it's like that's not game realistic, but yeah. that's where, again, I think some people have sold us a set of goods here. One size fits all. With respect to those play- people, they are highly intelligent and highly and, and highly rich at this stage because they made a lot of money off it. But they've, they've actually, they've actually might have regressed coaches thinking because now we're accepting that because they've said that, that's true. Yeah, exactly that. 
what are some some coaches that that you see inspire you with their ability to be a little different in their thinking um so funnily enough i actually thought moritz kosman <laughs> um because so obviously there's there's like some professional coaches and i'll get onto that afterwards but like yeah moritz in terms of the way he has variation with a purpose so yes like when you look at his tweets and the, the sessions that he releases there's loads of variation in terms of the pitch shape in terms of the size in terms of the players in terms of the rules in terms of the number of goals and the positions of the goals so there's so many like implicit tools which you can like vary and create different sessions with those but the important thing is actually the purpose behind it so what what are the actions that i'm trying to get out of it and how does that relate to the improvement that i'm seeking so i think like when i talk to him about these sessions it's or when i see him explaining it like it's it's really clear that yes these are the actions i'm looking for these are, this is the purpose behind the the certain constraints or the certain positions of the goals or the shape of the, the pitch for example so it's the variation with the purpose that's that's uh, someone that really inspires me in that way but also there's, there's others um eddie schmidt for example i think he's he's very busy now for example but he he used to release like more in private messages and things loads of different sessions and i looked at it i was like wow um the, the concept foosball calendar that we did i think two or three years in a row yeah, yeah. Like, so many excellent sessions there that i still sort of go back to sometimes when i'm looking for inspiration and think yeah like that that's a really nice idea how can i adjust this for my own session um yanis tasala is also releasing a lot of really good and creative session designs with again variation with the purpose um and then if we look at for example the top coaches we spoke a bit about Jurgen Klopp already and for me it's really impressive how his teams were always famous for pressing counter-attacking counter-pressing type of football but the development of his Liverpool team in possession is like is, is remarkable and he hasn't lost the essence of the team whilst adding that so instead of like adding and losing he's adding layers to their identity that's how i sort of see it adding layers to their identity and it's he's now basically created a machine which is comfortable dominating any kind of game if you want to play like if you want to dominate the ball against them they have no problem to work on pressing you and counter-attacking you if you want to sit back against you against them sorry they have no problem dominating the ball keeping you in there creating chances against the deep block and any type of game if you want to play toe-to-toe counter-attacking football there's no one better so I think that's really impressive. And also, yeah, Marco Rose and his training team, you know, Rose and Marich and, and all the other people that work with them are like, it's, it's similar to Klopp. So very much uh, came from the Red Bull sort of style of, of football, if you like, but mm-hmm. applying a interesting and flexible interpretation and position of play within that. And within that environment, he, he probably had a lot of question marks, you know, because Red Bull, not always the most possession happy type of type of culture. But to, to sort of bring that into that culture and have the success that he did, I think it's quite remarkable. Yeah. We'll just take a quick break here. Many of our listeners are very familiar with the work of Soccer IQ platform Sports Lab 360. And today we will hear about the program, not for me. Not from the owner, but from Grant Palmer, a coach in the UK and a user of the platform. Grant, how are you doing? 
Hey Gary, I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to hear that, Grant. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your coaching experiences? I'm heavily involved in the coaching side of the girls and women's game here in the UK. Uh, target market is normally under 12s through under 18s. But I've also worked with the open age women's teams uh, at uh, Leighton Orient and Norwich City Women's Football Club. Brilliant. And what is it that led you to implement in Sports Lab 360 with your teams? Due to the lack of time available in weekly coaching sessions, it was proving difficult to explain the various tactical elements we wanted the players to perform. And therefore, we couldn't progress their team development as we would have liked. Absolutely. It's a feeling I'm sure many of us as coaches have felt leaving the pitch with the sense that you didn't progress as much as you would have expected. So how did Sports Lab 360 change that? Sports Lab was an absolute game changer for my players because I could assign the modules beforehand. Players were showing up to training with a noticeably better understanding of the tactical theme of the day. What this did is to ultimately speed up the entire process and gave us a much better outcome for each of those sessions. And honestly, you know that it's working because you hear directly from your players how something at a particular moment in training for example, tie back to what they worked with on the module, for me, it's a no-brainer for any coach to use. Certainly makes sense. And when we think about what it is that's capturing the attention of young players, we know they're looking at their screens all throughout the day. So it's also meeting them in their territory and allowing them to develop through that channel. Grant, thank you for sharing and coming on the podcast. And we'll speak to you very soon. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Great stuff. Sports Lab 360 coaches, please check it out. Back to Judah. It breaks my heart to say it because I was a United fan, but uh, Liverpool, I had a chance to go watch them pre-season against Dortmund and we would normally not be a pre-season person at all. You know, I've, I've seen so many teams come over to the US and basically been just doing their first week or two of pre-season. So it's more a commercial tour, but my word, Liverpool were on a different level. There was only there was only one switch, and that was and that was from their their warm up onwards. The intensity of everything they did was just spectacular. Oh, I bet. And you think about the, the yeah the psychological things that you have to to do to to keep those kinds of to keep that kind of intensity at that level throughout the season before the season, as you just mentioned. And you think, wow, there's some amazing work going on behind the scenes. I saw, uh, again, like since I've moved to the Red Stars, it was, you know, a a player, players are a little bit, you you become a bit more conditioned to back off with players, especially with someone opposed work, because they use it just to refine their skill and, and you give players more space because they don't need you on top of them all the time. To watch Pep and Linders drive a five yard, 10 yard passing exercise and be right on top of it to get the speed of the ball going with, with that level of player was like, wow, you know, and and you could, again, <laughs> someone could do it on a Saturday and be like, oh, 20 players going, will you shut up and get lost? But it just matches their environment, doesn't it? Like you're saying that a consistency across the board. Absolutely right. Yeah. What, what, I'm interested, what kind of uh, instructions was he given to try and keep that intensity up? I've got the theft. It's on the Modern Soccer Coach platform, so cheap plug there. I can send you the link to it. I videoed it, and it's just 
it's not air punching, but it's just, you know, he is walking along the line. Only only 10 players warmed up, only to the 10 outfield players. So there's five sets of two, 10 yards apart. The most basic of basics, I would, if an under 12 coach did it, I would be appalled. And, you know, Pepin Linder does it, and I think it's great. <laughs> but but he's walking down the line, like just making sure that all the balls are moving at the right tempo. So so when I watch Liverpool, I'm thinking like there's never a pass that is not played, well, rarely played, you know, at with the ball just fired into people. You know, I'm wonder wondering with with a team that's trying to break low blocks, and that's obviously from a couple of years ago, that was their Achilles heel. Does quick ball circulation now do they take away that they're going to be slow build up, slow build up, bang, or do they just say, right, the quicker we circulate the ball, there's only one switch? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I guess it's just the changes of rhythm, isn't it? Like mm. big, like changes of rhythm. Actually, that's one point I wanted to make earlier about knowing the right moments to speed up and slow down. So sometimes you want to. Yes, slow down because we're trying to assess the opportunity, like where's the space going to open up? And we're probing, we're probing. And then at the right moment, bang. Now we've, like, for example, created the advantage. Now we need to hammer it home and make sure that we don't lose it. That means that extreme change of rhythm. Now we're going direct towards the goal. It's quick combinations, quick dribbles. And that's, yeah, really effective way to break down teams. The, you kind of touched on this before about giving the coaches a bit of space, but when they're talking about a club-wide game model, because you get this in some in some clubs in the US, uh, and again, it, it looks really, really good on a PDF or a, or a PowerPoint, we play this way. What's your thoughts on playing this way? And, you know, yeah, at U10, it looks really good, but at a U12, 14, 16, it, it hasn't really shifted do you limit the players? Like, what? What's your thoughts on a on a club wide curriculum or game model? Um, I think I like the idea to an extent. So, again, like I mentioned earlier, you want to give the players some consistency in terms of experience. I think that helps them with their development. But at the same time, you want there to be some variation. So, how to achieve that balance? I think you you lay out a like strategy. So this is the basics of our approach and these are the things that we don't change. So yes, we want to dominate possession, we want to press high, we want to do these basic things. But then the tactics, which is like the individual methods of application of that strategy, then you need to, or I think it's a good idea to give some freedom there. So freedom to different coaches to express it or interpret it in their own unique ways and that's where i go back to yes you've gone and hired good coaches now like allow them to be a good coach and allow them to be them because no point going out and getting really good coaches shoehorning them into roles where they can't show what they're good at so yeah allow him to uh, create his own interpretation of of the club's game model so yes we want to press high but perhaps he thinks it's better to, to press in a way where we create traps in the middle, like as a basic example. So some coaches might like the idea of, yeah, I think it's good for the players to get this experience of creating pressing traps in the middle. Whereas it might it's probably more common for coaches to say, yeah, we want to trap them on the outside. So I think when you allow coaches to come up with that variation for themselves, then you almost naturally get this variation that the players get in their experience. So yes, 
in total, they're still learning how to press, they're still learning how to build up from defence, and they're still learning how to try and dominate the game, which are the things that we're trying to coach them. But they learn how to do it in different ways. And I think that can only be helpful for the players in terms of their development. Staying on that then with pressing, do you see or do you think that this new goal kick rule is changing how pressing is structured within the game models? Do you think more teams are now not taking that risk and 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 basically relying on traps in the in the middle? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it might have something to do with the games I've been watching. So I still need to watch more because I haven't watched as many games this year as I would like. But I think I've seen way less teams sitting high and actually trying to press from a goal kick. Like way less teams against someone that wants to play out, obviously. Um I think because obviously now the defenders can receive inside the box, so that increases the amount of distance that the try the pressing team needs to try and cover to try and get access to the ball. So it does make it tougher. It means there's longer distances to cover. Um so I think yeah, most a lot more teams are probably sitting a bit deeper, maybe somewhere between like the the box and the halfway line, just a bit deeper trap. Yeah. Um, and then pressing from there because I've seen it way less often now that a team is trying to pre- play out from their own box and they're being pressed and challenged there. But I think actually some teams have this idea of, for example, like within, let's say within 4 2 goalkeeper plays to one of the centre backs. Now the near striker wants to run at the centre back in a way that he prevents the centre back playing back to the goalkeeper. So he sort of curves his run to mm-hmm. force the towards one side I think that would happen way less often now simply because of the distances you mm. just have to curve your run way more because the centre back's flatter so that means you lose even more space towards the centre back so he has more space to drive in towards the middle so I think that type of pressing approach would work less often now so that's like a really simple example of yeah a difference within anyone who would try to press uh, are you surprised at that there? Like, Did you see, before that came in, did you think it would have such an impact on that? Yeah, to be honest. Uh, not, not simply me. Like, we, we, I did with some people and were like, wow, like, this, this rule makes it a lot tougher to mm. press who are trying to play out. So I kind of guess, yeah, more people will probably sit off now because I guess you could set your press from just behind the line of the box and still have a kind of similar effect. So it's like, okay, we're not going to challenge them in their own box. We're going to allow them to come just in front of the box and then we're going to press them from there. So it makes sense for a lot of teams to do that because if you want to try and press all the way into their box, you're going to lose a lot of compactness, basically. Mm. And midfield are dragging you towards the box, then the distance between your midfield and your defence really, really opens up. So I think for some teams, they think, okay, no, we'd rather keep our compactness a bit and then press from a distance where we can stay compact. So I guess that it makes sense as a response, really. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think it would have such an impact. I thought teams would still be reluctant if they saw that that forward standing on the edge of the box. They'd still be like, no. Or it, it, even if the forward, you know, if they played it, the forward went. I didn't see it. So like, well, it's an extra 10 yards, maybe 15 yards. But it's it's been I I just I can't get over how much it's been a complete game change. And I suppose you're watching games at a level where the goalkeepers can they do have their feet are so good, aren't they, that they can 
they can receive back and then open it up and then expose the where that space is because the compactness goes. Exactly that. Yeah. Mm. Imagine Edison give him like 50, 60 yards, you know, he can hit Sane or he could play an assist for Aguero, for example. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's the thing. It's the key point you made just there, that the fact that the keepers can expose that distance. Whereas in grassroots, for example, like some teams who try and play out from within those distances, if teams and teams do press them high, then it's a bit tougher for them to expose the spaces because simply because of the distribution differences, the power differences, and yeah. Okay, wrapping it up, how can an analyst who's coming into a club, tactical analyst comes into a club and we love seeing it and, and we love reading about it, but it, I think that there's maybe a bit of a misinterpretation or misunderstanding. And a lot of these analysts are just doing data entry or simply editing video. How can an analyst, I suppose, bring new ideas to a club uh, without being stuck in a front of a computer all day? Well, I think the first thing, so if, if we take, for example, hiring a new person, let's say mm-hmm. that that's our point. So you've hired a new analyst. I think hiring a new person should always be an opportunity to get feedback on the way things run at the moment. And they, they have almost an outside perspective because they haven't been almost, let's say, indoctrinated in the club's like idea of doing things. So all of it's a bit new to them. So they perceive it a, a bit more, um, yeah, let's say they perceive it a bit more sharply. So they're a bit more attentive to the certain details because it's all new to them. So I think that should always be an opportunity for clubs to say, hey, you've been here for, I don't know, let's say two months now. Like, how do you think our processes work? What do you think we could do better? And I think, I know, I know in fact, that there's definitely some clubs out there who are doing that. And I think they, they benefit from, okay, this is what he thinks. Like, let's, let's have the open-mindedness to analyze and evaluate and reevaluate again, our processes and, and look at the feedback we've got. Can we do this better? Is that actually better? Yeah, that works. Let's do it. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that's that's one way when you when you sort of hire new people. But if it's someone who's already been at the club for a while, it's it's maybe tougher for them to perceive the slight things which could be better, maybe. But on the other hand, it can also be easier because they know it better. So they say, and they know the idea behind it as well. That's one thing. So we know the idea behind why we do it like this but we can achieve that same idea with a different way. So I think it's all about having the open-mindedness and the processes to have feedback and allow feedback, but not even just within their department, actually. So if you've got an analyst who has skill set in other areas, it could be in psychology, it could be in coaching and tactics, and allow them to like give feedback and um, give their ideas on, on different parts of the, of the club. What's your goal? You're obviously, you said you were finishing up your degree. What's the, the goal to, to get out of that there? Is it on the analysis side, is it on the coaching side, psychology side? Well, I, I try to think not too far in the future, actually. Um, right. Yeah, because <laughs> I think it's Arthur who said, the past gives regrets and the future gives uncertainty. So time to be happy is to live in the moment. <laughs> so I try and do that as much as possible. But yeah, I'm absolutely looking to go into football coaching, analysis, one of these types of roles. I think I could use some 
I could yeah develop a lot in that kind of environment. So those are the kind of things. What last one then for you? Where are you? Where are you getting your? You know, where are you getting your reading? Where are you? I suppose you mentioned you haven't watched as much as you would you would have liked probably with school in the past while. But like, I'm sure you're catching up on articles. And where's your to your go to uh, on social media to get all your tactical stuff? Ah, social media. Wow. Um, Twitter definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who are doing like good tweets on on games. So Ishvan, for example, there's mm-hmm. a lot of in-game stuff which is nice and interesting um i also like looking at people who yeah are sort of doing it in in different different countries so different leagues so um i know some people started looking at austrian bundesliga for example which is quite nice to see some of the first team stuff there also the championship so obviously like when someone like marcelo bielsa goes to the championship there's gonna be interest there so um, the, the names of the accounts don't come to me too easily, but you know, there's mm. football analysis, uh, some of their authors, also um, the false fullback, like they they do some stuff in German, which I learned recently. I can actually read some of that stuff without translating, so that's good. Um, and yeah, lo- loads of others. So Twitter is, is number one, basically. Twitter is brilliant for tactical analysis, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so like- good. Yeah, it's so good that. Uh... I think it's absolutely crapped upon the whole community of monetizing it because now you can just go and get, you don't even have to wait full day to get a full game breakdown, do you? It's available somewhere. Yeah, it's amazing. That is great. It really is. And and if we use it properly as well, it's it's somewhere where we can challenge our own ideas and mm. feedback from the community, which actually should be, or at least from my perspective, the way or the reason behind me doing it and sharing. So we share it. Not because like I want five hundred retweets, but like mm-hmm. I want to look at it and say, "Hey, like, did you think about this perspective?" And I think, "Ah, oh, maybe I didn't," or like maybe I did, and and yeah, have constructive feedback and conversation that way. It seems like the data and analytics community—that's a big thing for them. Uh, even with stats bomb, it's not about. You know, I understand there are a lot of things that are under lock and key at, at certain clubs, but the community itself is about showing your work and challenging your you know a school of thought or challenging ideas and, and in a way that actually embarrasses general coaching because we're on the other end of the spectrum that are you know god people are arguing over a bloody rondo you know and these people are putting out work that is blowing it away yeah <laughs> yeah no i do think that's a good idea I'm sorry good point um, like earlier today i read something which was a perspective on Liverpool's season and it's like a lot of expected goals methodology has said like oh yeah Liverpool's quite lucky they're overperforming their expected points and stuff and there's an article which was saying no that it's not luck it's not this and they looked at the game states and provided an explanation that way saying actually no this Liverpool team is dominating every game state whereas if you compare it to some other teams like psychologically maybe their heads go down when they're one goal down which means they concede more Whereas Liverpool, no, like if they go one goal down, they don't even concede shots. When they're one goal down, they dominate the game that hard. So yeah, I looked at that. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's that's a different perspective. And I think obviously there's some problems within it, like the way it was written. But like, I liked it. I thought it was interesting. So I think they're doing that quite well. To be fair. Brilliant. All right. Well, hey, this has flown by. Uh, really appreciate it. Let's keep in touch. Uh, wish you all the best 
as you finish up school and uh yeah let's get you involved in soccer and get you back in the podcast sometime yeah definitely would love to absolutely flown by like you said thanks for inviting me thanks so much to judah for his time and his insight there i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did yeah game models are an interesting one for me to talk about and and try to evolve the conversation about them and i thought judah did a brilliant job there probably i think it was three years ago when we did the first modern soccer coach mentorship program instead of submitting resumes we asked them to submit basically coaching philosophies and examples of game models and we got a lot of stuff in and i was really excited to read it read them all and get stuck into them and then after about the third or fourth one i realized that they were all pretty much the same uh you know everyone wants to build from the back everyone wants to press high in the transition phase everyone wants to win the ball initially and if you can't hey drop back and get reorganized and that can be fairly generic and fairly bland so what I've been trying to do for the last year or two is find a little bit more variance in game models and try and see who's doing things different. Uh, but a lot of it, I think, comes down to what Judah was talking about in that detail. And I think the difference in studying them is actually getting out on the pitch as well and getting an appreciation of how they all interact and how they all intersect. And, and theory is brilliant to say that Yes, if we can't win the ball immediately, we will go back and cover our own goal. But in practice, if you do that and you have an opportunity to maybe win the ball higher up the pitch and then all of a sudden everyone takes off running, jogging back to their own goal, you're giving up 60, 70 yards of space. All of a sudden then you're running the wrong way. You're defending your goal as opposed to the halfway line and, and the opposition are getting a much better look at creating an opportunity on your goal. It it just it just baffles me and how we talk about this and kind of accept that without challenging exactly where we're going to win the ball. If we can't win it high, how are we going to win it higher? How can we keep them there? How can we force them backwards? You know, Getting those questions, I think, answered involves a coach who is continually working out on the pitch with the players and experiencing these problems all the time so I thought that was great when Judah was talking about the difference in the detail of the coaches and I think yeah in order to get that detail we've got to be looking at the game through a lens with a lot more depth than, than possibly uh, we do at times for sure so really really enjoyed that would love to hear your thoughts as always at Gary Kernin on Twitter at Gary Kernin on Instagram please don't forget the back three webinar is coming up on the Modern Soccer Coach platform next week get yourself involved take a look would love to hear your thoughts modernsoccercoach.com slash community thanks so much for listening have a great week goodbye Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.